The Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, I'll be chatting with Max Kufner, Vice President for Maritime Above Water Systems at Tullus Australia, and we'll be talking about Plan Galileo, supporting Navy's operations, and the impact of increased tensions in the Indo-Pacific region. G'day, Max. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Pleasure to be with you today. Well, let's get straight into it, and we'll start with the, the big background question. For those who may not know, can you tell us what is Navy's Plan Galileo, and what's the expected timeline? Okay, so Plan Galileo is part of the future maritime sustainment model, and it's been developed to tie in and work with and alongside the continuous shipbuilding program that Navy and CASG are embarking upon. And I guess one of the core tenets of it, or one of the the key things that they're looking to achieve from it, is to make sure that sustainment of the platforms and their systems is considered right up front alongside of the procurement. You know, in days and years gone past, um, not just for Australia but for many nations, uh, the sustainment of the platform is a, I won't call it a, a pure afterthought, but it's something that's thought of downstream and us- usually on the basis of um, some fairly basic logistics products that get delivered. And that doesn't always deliver the best outcome. Um, in terms of sustainability uh, and also the, the cost of sustainment and the total cost of ownership of the, the platforms and their systems. So with Plan Galileo, what Navy is seeking to do is, is make sure those things are considered up front, but also change the model a little bit. So historically or of, of recent time in Australia, at least, we've been focused on um, class sustainment. And by that, I mean that there was typically a prime contractor that was the sustainment agent that was doing everything in a vertically integrated fashion, and that includes all of the -the above-the-line engineering as well as the maintenance planning as well as the execution of that. And so what the model does now is it sets up an asset class enterprise, which is made up of the capability lifecycle manager, uh, design services contractors, and the system program officers from CASG themselves as that above-the-line asset class enterprise that that looks after things like the obsolescence management, configuration management, doing any changes that are needed for the platform, making sure that all of the products that are needed from the build program to be able to sustain the platform are, are all there and in good order. And then it's also looking to create um, the, what I'd call the delivery, the maintenance delivery enterprise, which within it is embodied this concept of regional maintenance centres and regional maintenance precincts. And there'll be four regional maintenance precincts around Australia, northeast, which is Cairns, north, which is Darwin, west, obviously Perth, and east being Sydney. So that, that's in a nutshell what Plain Galileo is. In terms of the timeline, um, the Commonwealth is is progressing at a fair pace at the moment. There's a few tenders that have been um, issued and let already, and there's a, a couple in progress right now. So they have tended and let the uh, capability lifecycle manager for the OPBs, 
as well as the regional maintenance precinct for Northeast, which is Cairns. Um, a tender has been issued, and I guess it won't be too long before the Commonwealth makes an announcement for RMP West. Um, and the tenders for RMP North, in fact, the tender for RMP North closed a couple of weeks ago, and the tender for RMP East is in progress right now. So that will close in uh, about a month's time from today, in fact. Beyond that, um, I think they're focused on getting the capability lifecycle manager for the enhanced capes um, in place as part of the initial operating model for Plan Galileo. There's quite a bit going on there, and uh, yeah, you've you've gone through um, a lot of detail because that was one of my questions when I was learning more about this. Was uh, you're currently providing uh, support to Navy at Garden Island there in Sydney and also up in Darwin? So, uh, are you able to say how that Plan Galileo is going to change what you're doing in those areas? So, obviously, the for the future, so the, the existing contracts at the moment will continue to run for some time. Um, I don't think that the Navy is looking to um, disrupt the um, maintenance activities or the um, management of those particular classes at the moment, especially given that they're leg legacy platforms that will pay off in the not-too-distant future. But certainly for the new classes of ships that are coming into service, the enhanced CAPES, the OPVs, they'll certainly want them to be coming into the new structure, the new model within Plain Galileo. And, and so not a huge amount of change for our existing programs right now, but certainly it will be, you know, this, the way we uh, execute contracts today, having that complete vertically integrated activity, we, it won't be organised like that going forward. So, you know, much closer around this asset class enterprise for um all of the planning and, and getting all of the engineering activities sorted out versus the delivery model, which will be um, focused on class agnostic delivery. So in any given region, they could be working on more than one class potentially at any given point in time. So you, know, you could be doing enhanced CAPES and OPV sustainment at the exact same time. I think that would be the, the biggest change but I guess within that fundamentally in terms of the way Talos operates and and looking at building local capability and working with the supply chain, you know, looking to, you know, create opportunities for things like apprentices and um, trainees and cadets and, and, and in fact even doing some R&D and working with not just internally but also working with the supply chain in that space, that, that will continue for Talos. It's something that we've always been big on. So when they're talking about operating the north and the east and, and the west and so on, it's not like one group doing the whole thing. It would be multiple groups in there. So as you said, it's it's so it's, it's like there's the the class and then there's the services that are common provided across the classes. Yes. So yeah, I guess it, it, who's doing it in each of the re regions will be up to CASG and the, and the various tender responses that they receive and who they select. But there will be an element, I would imagine, of the regional maintenance precincts at some point coming together in some sort of forum that would be able to share, as a good enterprise would, share some of the good work that each is doing so that each of the precincts could leverage off of that 
and and mimic or mirror those improvements for the benefit of CASG and the Navy. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, uh, for it's a very big point for myself and my team and, and for TALUS as a whole. I mean, you know, within our mission statement, it's, it's quite simple for us. It, it come, you know, er, everything we do is centred around, you know, doing what we can to support the Navy to keep Australia safe. And, and so ourselves with the rest of industry, we're all working to try and, and maximise the amount of time that Navy can have with their platforms at sea and minimising the downtime and within that, trying to manage the cost as best we can so that the customer reaps the benefit of that. No, that's understandable and uh, very important indeed. But we'll come back to um, working and integrating with others and so on. But uh, first up, this, it's the perennial question we like to ask these days, very topical. How does Tullus define sovereign capability? I, I guess fairly simply and, and no surprise, it mirrors what Defence, Navy, what CASG have said that they're looking for in this space. And it's about being able to sustain and support things locally and being able to have the capability in each of the regions um, to be able to do that to the extent that makes sense. And and, and I, I'll, I use that very directly because... You know, I'm quite conscious of some of the regions. Um, you know, they they are somewhat limited in terms of population, um, and and I, I think it would be, you know, false to try and and do everything and build everything locally in those regions. I think what we've got to do is, and and this is for AIC holistically across all of the defence programs. I think I think it's very important that we carefully consider what needs to be done locally and then make sure that we pursue those and, and, and deliver those really, really well so that we can maximise what's needed for Australian defence. Trying to shotgun and trying to do everything locally um, won't, won't work and, and, in fact, will only result in failure because you spread, you'll end up spreading yourself so thin that you don't deliver anything well. Yeah, no, exact. But I guess... But for me, I would focus, you know, it, it, it's on building to the extent that makes sense and is, is needed, the, the regional industry capability, bolstering the, the SMEs, supporting SMEs, giving them certainty of work so that they can develop their businesses and, and invest in things like apprenticeships and cadetships, um, traineeships, and where it makes sense, even a little bit of R&D. But then uh, another key factor for Navy and something we're focused very much on is is also making sure that some of the work is is provided to um, Navy to provide that technical supplementation training that the fleet support units need. And, you know, in some cases it might even be things like, you know, rather than paying a contractor to do the work, you pay a contractor to supervise the work and get the fleet support units to do that work so that they build their skills and their mastery. And, and, and that's a, you know, that's a good example of one for me that's a real win-win scenario because not only are you helping them build their skills, but when they then turn around and go to sea, they've got better skills and they've got better understandings of the systems and equipment that they're looking after so they're able to look after them better. And 
industry is not missing out because they're not missing out on work altogether. They're still providing the supervision for the FSU to do that work. No, it does sound good. And uh, like you've indicated SMEs and uh, local supply chains in there. So how important is the local supply chain in supporting Navy's fleet in the north? Um, critical. We couldn't do it without them, quite simply. You know, the reality of it is, is you know, a good example, there was the, a contractor that was a small fabrication shop, only had basically one person and some contractors. And by working with them and providing more work to them and, and helping them understand what good quality assurance means and, and getting ISO certification and a few other things, they've now grown um, to an organisation of, in a couple of examples, of over 30 people. And, and that's a really good example of how you can help a small company, you know, one or two person show to evolve and develop into a 30 person organization that is now, you know, a, a real enabler for defense in that region because they're doing so much work for us. I mean, it's, it's something that Talos is, is really big on, not just in Darwin, but in all of the areas in which we work. Um, I mean, we published an, a, a a report independent review which was done by Accenture um, last year and what that showed was that between 2018 and 2020 Talos spent 1.9 billion dollars in the local supply chain here in Australia and in 2020 alone we spent 657 million with 1,841 different companies here in Australia um, and you know the interesting thing that comes out of that is this, the spin-off out of that is the estimates from Accenture were that that was creating something like 2,051 local jobs in Australia through that supply chain engagement. Yeah, that's that's pretty good for the local industry, and uh, as you were saying before, you know, supporting Australian industry capability and uh, and so on. So it sounds like collaboration across the board is very important to being able to provide the support that Navy needs for its operations. Would would you concur on that? I won't say you can't do anything without collaboration, but it becomes so much easier with collaboration um, and and then working together towards common outcomes, and which is one of the things that we've done a lot of with um, CASG and, and Navy. Uh, if you look at some of the programs that we've worked on historically, uh, the Mine Hunter in service support, um, the guided missile frigates, the FFGs, and the, and the awards that the enterprise collaboration on that program achieved, both nationally and internationally. Similarly, working with other primes, um, you know, Talus has been involved with, uh, and I've been fortunate to be involved with the sustainment programs that have won the Essington Lewis Award for sustainment in 2015, 17 and 19 for work on HMAS success on the FFGs and on the Armadales. It is working together as a team and establishing common objectives and working together towards achieving those objectives it is really the best way to operate and the best way to work. Otherwise, you know, it's very easy to start pulling in different directions and you're consuming energy that's not helping the outcomes. Yeah, totally. So 
we're talking about the outcomes there, and that naturally leads me on to ask the question of uh, how does Navy assess the availability and readiness of their fleet? What do, I imagine they've definitely got metrics and so on. So what kinds of metrics and considerations do they apply that uh, yourselves and other suppliers have to uh, be held to? Yeah, listen, one of the key ones that they use um, material readiness days, MRDs as we call them, for the availability and seaworthiness of their platforms. And, and that availability is encompassing, so that, that is, you know, not just certain systems or certain aspects of the platform, but holistically is the platform and systems able to meet the intent of the mission that um, Navy need to achieve. And so material ready days is a key one, but then, you know, collectively we all have and um, measured by our performance in HSC. One that we've been focused a lot on recently is supply chain metrics with things becoming more and more challenging through the supply chain in particular where we look to procure um, supplies from abroad. And, you know, that's one of the key aspects of the capability lifecycle manager's roles is to look at the systems and equipment on board various platforms and look to localise to the extent possible the supply chain for the various systems and equipment that they have um, so that we are less reliant on um, procuring um, hardware and equipment from overseas. But in terms of the KPIs, another one that we track very closely is the number of defects that are on board the ship and how well we're acquitting those defects. The more of those that are acquitted, the better the material state of the vessel is and, and its ability to meet the mission intent for Navy. Um, it's, a, it's about all of us working together to give Navy the most reliable platform, safest platform that we can so that, you know, we can take I guess a small portion of the burden away from them so that they can do what they have to do. And, and let's face it, they're the ones that are doing the hard job, not us. Let's bring from those uh, readiness and, and all the K KPIs and so on. You've mentioned new vessels coming on. How has sustainment of Navy's fleet changed with these new vessels coming on, the LHD, the uh, air warfare destroyer, the future frigate? Are they introducing new technologies that you need to sustain? Are they, you know, what what what's changed for providing maintenance to those new platforms? Uh, it's an interesting question because I, I could answer in in the one breath I could say a lot <laughs> and also say not very much. At the end of the day, the platforms themselves are structures that are, are made of steel or, in some instances, aluminium, and you know they've got uh, a lot of there's, you know, lots of different um, coatings to try and prevent corrosion and those sorts of things. Some of the environments in which our Navy and our platforms need to operate are, are quite harsh from that perspective. Um, so corrosion is, is always a challenge and making sure that they are kept in a good state, um, preserved well so that they endure for the life of the platform is, is always going to be an activity that... Um, you know, we, we will see evolving technologies with some of the coatings, but um, fundamentally, and, and also per, perhaps you, know, you do see occasionally um, slightly different materials that are being used um, to minimise corrosion. So that, that's 
that area. But I guess what we are seeing is, is you know, when you look at some of the systems that are on board, the technology on those systems is advancing rapidly and um, not so much for the platforms that I've seen here locally. I guess the, if you think of the design of those platforms, those designs are still not the newest of designs. So those designs have been around for a while. But so, certainly some of the new conceptual designs that it, we're starting to see come through um, from abroad, you know, things like um, on some platforms now, um, they have large computing facilities, think like server farms, and a couple of them distributed through the ship. So when uh, organizations come with a, a new system, there is basically a sensor and then software that they load onto a server and everything is distributed through common consoles. So it, it greatly simplifies what the platform looks like internally. Um, but you know, I guess the analogy I would use is, is it's a bit like you know comparing um, maintenance to a car. If, if you were on the clock back 20 years ago, um, and pop the bonnet on the car, you you would see a, an engine and a distributor cap and some spark plug leads and you know some term, some leads off the battery and a few bits and pieces like that. Not a huge amount of electronics. Whereas you know the modern internal combustion engine has so many sensors on it now that it is most you know it is surrounded in electronics. And then you go that next step. And you look at electric vehicles, and, and there's no internal combustion engine at all, and it, it is just purely an electronic mo- electric motor with um, battery and electronics. Yeah, it's 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 like you're not so much a wrench turner uh, as you were in the past. Now you have plug your pr- computer into the system and start debugging from there. Absolutely, um, and to, a lot of the systems now have, have such good inbuilt fault diagnostics that. They will generally tell you where you need to go looking when there is a problem. So, I guess that's that's going to be one of the future trends. Is I think everything will, you know, that that concept of more sensors, more sensing, um, computing at the edge to determine what faults are and to direct people towards faults. That's going to be something that will become more prevalent, um, and it, it will also, you know, in terms of reporting. So it won't just be the crew that can see that, but when the, the ship is able to transmit, um, there'll be an operation centre that will be receiving all of that um, and and even that sort of stuff will be used as an input into planning the next maintenance periods or the next maintenance window of opportunity, all of those sorts of things, and everyone will be pre-positioning, pre-planning, uh, pre-ordering materials, all of that kind of stuff so that... Know, everything is there ready to go when the ship is available. Yeah, very much like the modern airliner where it's uh, reporting so you know at, by the time it's at the gate, the, the uh, engineers are ready to go to work on it. Exactly. Well, let's get to the uh, save the best for last, so to speak, but the, the big the big to- other topical item at the moment. And uh, how have the increased tensions in the Indo-Pacific region actually changed sustainment for Navy and What's been the impact on Tullus themselves? I mean, it's got to be uh, making things interesting that we've, I imagine we've got to have much higher readiness at the moment. All these different events that happen globally, they do have an impact on Australia. There's there's no question about it. Um, I, I won't talk directly to um, anything specific in the region. I think there's been plenty said in the media um, in recent times, especially in the last couple of weeks. But the reality of it is, is you know, 
the Navy have a job to do and, and industry has a job to do to support them as best we can to achieve that. And I guess, you know, we, we need to work with them to overcome some of the challenges that we've got in, in the marketplace at the moment. So, you know, we're providing sustainment in the context of supply chain disruptions that are happening global, globally, where we've got increasing interest rates and inflation, which is making it very difficult to even do simple things like establish a, a cost baseline because the price of materials is moving so quickly in the marketplace. You know, semiconductors, if you look at that story, is a really interesting one. But we've, you know, we've kind of almost forgotten about it, but we've also got, also got a pandemic that's running around the place at the moment. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of challenges both within our own workforce and, and our partners and um, the supply chains and the technical support networks that we use, you know, they, at times, there have been times when they've been struggling to provide the people that we needed because they've just got so many people away with COVID. So it, it's about working together and, you know, trying to find the solutions that we can um provide the service that's needed by Navy. So, you know, going back to what I said before, just you know, help them stay at sea with good, reliable ships and systems so that they can do the difficult job that they have to do. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, it's becoming more topical of keeping them out there at sea and availability to, to do what they have to do. So, Max, thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's been great to have a chat with you about Galileo and supporting Navy and so on. Um, we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity and um, it would be interesting. I look forward to any feedback that, uh, and comments that might come from the um, podcast. For sure. Well, thanks, Max. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can tell a colleague about us so they too can benefit from the show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.